are listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of the Contemporary Thought series and was recorded on November 5th, 2019 at the Centre d'études Maghrebina Tunis Semat. In this episode, Dr. Shayna Marshall, Associate Director of the Institute for Middle East Studies and Assistant Research Faculty Member at the George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs, talks about economic justice and political trends framing the fight over populism. So I've always been super interested in political economy, even though we didn't have a political economy subfield in graduate school at the University of Maryland. But Middle East political economy as a subfield is relatively underdeveloped when compared to other regional, other area studies or other regions. So Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa and Eastern Europe, East Asia, etc. This is, I think, largely due to the emphasis on oil and the development of the rentier state paradigm in Middle East studies which really prevented a focus or development on other political economy approaches to the region that was not sort of faced similarly by other regions. There wasn't this sort of very singular dominant paradigm that was sort of sucking up all the oxygen. There's no, for example, flagship journal of Middle East political economy whereas every other area studies region has a titular journal that deals with just that region's study of political economy. The closest thing we have really is the Middle East Report, or MARIP, which is not peer-reviewed and so doesn't sort of add to your disciplinary CV. And so there's a real disincentive in Middle East studies for people to focus on political economy. There's no, there's typically very few graduate courses on political economy that focus on the Middle East, if at all. There are no endowed chairs for example, in Middle East political economy. There's no fellowships, postdoctoral fellowships, for people studying Middle East political economy. There is one reference textbook in Middle East political economy. There are some economic histories, but those rely mainly on Ottoman and colonial archives. And these are older books by people like Charles Isawi, Roger Owen, and then a few sort of newer works by people like Adam Hania, which I think draw primarily on, on sort of corporate archives and newer government archives. That is largely in response to the uprisings of 2011. So there's this sort of huge period in Middle East studies where, where people just really weren't studying political economy or weren't sort of calling it political economy and were mainly focused on this sort of rentier state approach. And this has left a lot of the work on Middle East political economy to technocrats and sort of mainstream economists who are working in international financial institutions, in multilateral development banks, and lending agencies, and other institutions that are sort of steeped in neoclassical economic traditions and aren't necessarily coming to the region from sort of a background of having studied the region. So as a graduate student, I was really interested, like most other graduate students, in social movements and in their capacity to sort of shift the balance of power in authoritarian political settings in the Middle East. But the onset of the global financial crisis in 2008 was actually sort of very formative for me in how I was thinking about the Middle East and political economy. And I, I started thinking about it in a more systemic sort of global sense. And so it made very little sense, I thought, to study the Middle East as a sort of hermetically sealed sort of system of regional economies because they were so penetrated at this point by global financial structures, which became so clear in the immediate aftermath of the 2008-2009 global 
global crisis. So I drifted sort of to, toward looking at the intersection of Middle East authoritarianism and, and global finance structures, which then led me to focus on how regional militaries were interacting with multinational defense firms and global capital circuits like private equity and venture capital. So I focused my research on, in particular, these investment agreements that were signed between companies like Boeing and Raytheon and British Aerospace with armies in places like Egypt and Jordan. So although regional militaries are often conceptualized as these autarkic, sort of insular-focused, mercantilist, sort of oriented actors that were focused on public sector operations and sort of a bureaucratic authoritarian model, I found them to be really natural partners for major U.S. and European multinational firms working together to introduce new forms of capitalist partnership that reflected the most contemporary forms of financial innovation. Eagerly sort of exploiting new types of investment vehicles and spawning really entirely new sectors of financial services that were unique to this, uh, to this form of exchange between defense firms and regional militaries. And that was sort of what my dissertation focused on, and I can talk a bit more about that if anybody's interested in the Q&A. This uh, really convenient marriage of this uber-nationalist institution of the military rooted in the same sort of ideological soil as post-independence populist governments with a truly sort of global and transnational actor that embodies the sort of cut, the cutting edge of contemporary capitalism that is the U.S. and European multinationals, made me think more about how these two forms are articulated in the Marxist sense of the term. So sort of how they constitute and contribute to the development of each other. So rather than seeing them as adversarial, seeing them as sort of necessary forms in the evolution of the overall global economy. I think viewing populism in this way as an articulation in the process of evolving toward an intensely financialized stage, global capitalist development, is productive for us in thinking about the relationship between the U.S. and the Middle East, or really the entire global South. So that's the background for sort of how I'm trying to think through these new forms of populism. And I'm not an expert in political ideology um, or political thought or political theory. And so this is a very sort of early stage project, and I'm super interested in anything anyone has to say about, about what they think I should read or methods of theorizing this, this relationship. So during the massive sort of 2010 women's marches that took place simultaneously all around the globe, this New York Times headline caught my eye because it said, women's marches around the world reflect worry over violence and populism. And I, of course, had been <laughs> to the Women's March, the previous Women's March in 2018. And the term populism, you know, I certainly never saw that on anyone's placard when I was there, and I didn't see it, um, any reference to anything like that on anyone's, you know, protest signs at any of the other sort of European capitals or Middle East capitals or any of the urban centers where they had these gatherings. And so I thought, well, that seems really odd. So what? So what's going on here? And I think it's that these newspaper editors are sort of using this term as a stand-in right, for forces like nationalism, Islamophobia, misogyny, racism, anti-Semitism. But the defining principle of populism, right, that which distinguishes it from other political movements, is anti-elite sentiment, right? There's nothing about the sort of the basic definition of populism that has anything to do with identity, right? It's a, it's a class-based move, a class-based ideology. So why would sort of popular media and political analysts use the term populism 
to denote animus toward decidedly un-elite populations, right? Like refugees, religious minorities, people of color, and women. So I think this particular reading of populism actually has more to do with the pathologies and fears of the ruling class, those that are embedded in the system of financialized global capital, than it does with the political imaginaries of the poor and working class. So to the affluent ruling class, Populism is really is barely removed from fascism because its most basic realization in policy is their imminent loss of wealth and power. So a populist political program is first and foremost about the defenestration of the rich and powerful. And this is in contradistinction, and I think this is really important, to the ideology of liberal economics that has dominated our thinking for a century, or really much longer, um, which intentionally puts the focus on the system's capacity to raise up the underclass, rather than tearing down those at the top. Although we know this to be false in practice, uh, it is nonetheless emphasized in the theorization of liberal economics. The fact that the holders of capital succeed in accumulating ever-increasing amounts of capital under a system of liberal economics is at most acknowledged as an unfortunate or a temporary feature of a poorly implemented liberalism. It's never acknowledged that growing inequality is in fact a requirement for the proper functioning of a liberal economic system. Populism, on the other hand, intentionally puts the focus on the ruling class. The central problem to be confronted here then is not the poverty of the underclasses, but the concentrative, concentrated power of the ruling class. As a result, the policy options and the prescriptions that are derived from populism necessitate first and foremost the seizure of wealth and power from the ruling class because without this, there is no realization of dignity or power for the massive underclasses. If we think of the body of research and literature that has been produced during the previous half century in nearly all fields dealing with political economy, such as the field of development economics, the challenge animating this scholarship is how to provide the poor with the tools necessary to lift themselves out of poverty. These are tools like microloans, vocational training programs, access to new technologies, subsidies to purchase agricultural inputs, access to basic health services, etc. The focus is almost never on how to dismantle the structures that facilitate the increasing transfer of wealth and assets to a small ruling class. Populism inverts this relationship so that the burden of change is on the capitalist class and the structures that it has put in place to accumulate power. But the most powerful financial institutions have, have very little interest in actually reforming the structures that promote inequality across the globe. For example, the World Bank's Doing Business Index, which ranks countries according to how easy it is for entrepreneurs to start businesses and presumably generate job creation, and uh, you know, countries throughout the Middle East try very hard every year to sort of move up on this, on this index, matches up almost exactly with the index of countries ranked according to their status as tax havens, enabling rich people to avoid paying revenue to the state. Similarly, rules regarding processes such as profit repatriation, or the ability to export all of your company's profits to another location where the tax rules are more beneficial to capital, are still considered a critical policy tool to help poor countries attract foreign direct investment and other forms of capital inflow. Instead of working to incentivize the rich in poor countries, a populist research agenda would examine how to develop enforcement mechanisms to collect adequate taxes from the wealthy rather than seeking their voluntary participation in the economy. Turns out the most effective way of doing this 
is not a technocratic solution like developing policy incentives to get rich people to abandon the use of tax havens, such as lowering the marginal tax rate or uh, providing amnesty for past tax violations. The most effective way of dismantling tax havens is actually putting rich people in jail for engaging in tax evasion. And this process would actually require rebuilding the state and the public sector organizations that international financial institutions like the World Bank and the IMF have advised states to dismantle in order to streamline their operations and better compete in a global economy. A capacity to monitor tax avoidance and evasion requires substantial public resources, including state financial support for investigative journalism, like the Panama, like what produced the Panama Papers, devoting more resources to public prosecutors' offices and bureaucracies engaged in financial monitoring, supporting independent watchdog groups, providing structures to protect corporate whistleblowers against reprisals, and hiring more government tax accountants. None of these activities, however, arise organically. They do not exist in environments that are characterized by voluntary corporate regulation, such as those in the U.S., and they will never be generated through the public-private partnerships that are so beloved by multilateral lending agencies, because no private investor has an interest in providing a public good that is designed to target them for illegal and unethical activities. The Panama Papers leaks, which revealed the identities of many major tax evaders, turned out to be the single most significant tool available to poor country governments to recover lost revenue, and it had zero relation to any of the programs designed or promoted by huge multilateral financial institutions whose stated goal is to raise the poor out of poverty. Many countries used the leaks to contact wealthy citizens and demand that they pay back taxes on their hidden assets. For example, in Colombia, the government used the leaks to target named individuals with threats of prosecution, which resulted in an 800% increase in the value of disclosed assets and generated an additional tax revenue in a single year that amounted to nearly 2% of the entire country's GDP. For comparison, that's more than the percentage of GDP that NATO countries spend on their entire defense budgets. There is no technocratic tax policy that has ever produced an outcome remotely close to this in terms of how effective it is in reducing the accumulated assets of the super-rich. For decades, the advice of the World Bank and the IMF has been broadening the tax base to collect revenue from the middle class because this was a cheap and easy solution. The middle class and working class populations draw their income from wage labor. That labor is provided to an increasingly small number of large multinational conglomerates, meaning the information is much more easily collected and reported to the government tax authorities. This kind of income tax is therefore easy to collect because it comes from wage earners, not those who earn their income from assets that are difficult for the government to identify or accurately value. Building an empowered tax authority that relies not on easy to collect taxes, but on hidden wealth, not only provides additional tax revenues that can be spent on schools and hospitals for the poor in places like Colombia, but more importantly in the long term, it weakens the capacity for continued accumulation by the super rich. The enormous returns on speculative investment like real estate and exotic financial instruments compared to the relatively low returns on long-term savings vehicles used by the poor and working classes has been instrumental in facilitating increased inequality. Weakening the ruling class will therefore require slowing down that engine of accumulation. But even the discourse surrounding the issue of tax avoidance once again reveals the contradictions between economic liberalism and the populist impulses that animate much of our contemporary politics. 
technocrats and policymakers attempting to replicate this result by developing the institutional infrastructure to go after wealthy tax evaders propose the creation of more robust monitoring mechanisms at the state level, mainly public prosecutors and tax collectors, two of the most underfunded institutions in contemporary neoliberal states. I think Trump, you know, President Trump in the United States just cut the budget of the IRS by like 20%. So they lost an enormous number of tax collectors and many of the individuals that are still there, there was a big article in the newspaper a few days ago, basically said that it's so difficult for them to go after wealthy individuals for tax fraud that they concentrate their bureau's almost entire resources on just going after sort of regular sort of middle-income Americans because that's the only place where they're actually going to recover any excess funds because they're, it's impossible for them to go after these very super wealthy people who have very good and very complex ways of hiding their, their assets overseas. So even were they to succeed in funding an expansion of such institutions, which is extremely unlikely in an environment where more bureaucracy and public spending does not align with prevailing economic discourse, such an approach is likely to be little more than an arms race in which the public always loses. Any additional resources added to the government side will be more than offset by additional resources devoted to corporate lawyers and lobbyists who will either find loopholes in the legal system to emancipate their ruling class clients or ensure the laws are modified to limit future successful prosecutions. A real solution requires a radical change that targets the entire global financial infrastructure, including banks and the complementary industries that serve them in the judicial and legislative arenas. This would necessitate a rebalancing of government priorities and capacities to weaken the global class of white-collar professionals, so bankers, lawyers, lobbyists, etc., that provide the human infrastructure that enables this high degree of wealth concentration. It is my thinking that the difficulty and complexity of this task is actually very clear to the globe's underclasses, and that this is what has led to the rise of populism. In the Global North, for example, American family farmers are well aware that the billions of dollars spent annually by the U.S. government on agricultural subsidies, ostensibly designed to keep them on their land, in fact go to huge agribusiness conglomerates and extremely wealthy landowners who engage in a nominal amount of agricultural activity, such as owning a few head of cattle on thousands of acres of land, in order to qualify as farmers and thus benefit from extremely low property tax rates. So when President Trump institutes tariffs that hurt ordinary farmers, the fact that it also hurts huge commercial agricultural exporters like Cargill, Monsanto, and Archer Daniels Midland is enough to earn the president the support of struggling farm families directly impacted by these policies. They see the disruption of global circuits of capital and commodities as a fundamental challenge to the system that has for so long not only enabled but in fact accelerated accumulation by the super-rich and made their lives more difficult. Resource scarcity is another clear component of rising populism. For decades, Saudi Arabia has been using private equity vehicles to buy up agricultural land in the U.S. in the Southwest in order to grow fodder for uh, Saudi Arabia's large dairy cattle industry. Riyadh is essentially using its extraordinary financial resources to gain access to extremely cheap water because there's no charge for accessing groundwater on agricultural land in the United States. But acute drought and drained aquifers has finally made the politics of water scarcity in the U.S. as contentious as it has always been in Saudi Arabia. Despite many farmers and urban residents' acute awareness that these huge commercial farms are foreign-owned, 
Again, due to the advanced financialization of the global economy, it is American private equity managers, commodities futures traders, and other white-collar finance professionals that are the public face of these foreign-owned ventures, once again demonstrating to working and middle-class Americans the very real shared structures and practices that unite this global cosmopolitan elite. Besides today's global elite is highly homogenized, because today's global elite is highly homogenized, a very wealthy Tunisian citizen, for example, or an Indian or a Chinese citizen has much more in common with a very wealthy American or European than they do with members of their own co-nationals who exist in the underclass. And the reaction against this cosmopolitan global elite is easily translated into a reactionary populism that blends with chauvinism, sectarianism, and other socially exclusionary tendencies. Public support for these tendencies has already translated into specific national policies in many places. An emerging strategy directed at denying power to the global ruling class is already visible on the global scale and is reflected in phenomena that seek to tear down the truly transnational structures that have facilitated the rise of global elites. This includes trends like fleeing from dollarization, so the, the intentional marketing of third world commodities like oil or rare earth minerals in currencies other than dollars or euros, as well as the rise of regionalism, at, which is as often as not expressed in conflict, such as the Saudi and Emirati war on Yemen, and I think support for nominally autarkic and nationalist military regimes in the Middle East and elsewhere. So I'm particularly interested in what people have to say about these forces in Tunisia or elsewhere in North Africa and how your observation of these sort of patterns and these evolving tendencies differ, you know, in your perception or, or how you see it as present in the ordinary discourse of politics. Thank you for listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themagrippodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, like our Facebook page, Maghrib in Past and Present Podcasts, subscribe to the CEMAT newsletter at www.cematmagrib.org, or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghrib Studies. See you soon for a new episode.